Hello listeners, my name is Tashara and welcome to another episode of the LSE Focal Point podcast. Today I'm very excited to be joined by John Tuttle. John is a vice chairman of the New York Stock Exchange where he oversees its global listings and exchange traded products businesses. He is also president of the New York Stock Exchange Institute. He has held a variety of roles within the New York Stock Exchange as well as in the US government. He holds a BBA in Business Administration from Eastern Michigan University and an MBA from the University of Notre Dame. John, how are you doing today? I'm well, thank you so much for having me on Focal Point. Great, let's get started. Could you tell us more about your journey to becoming the Vice Chairman and President of the New York Stock Exchange Institute? So I've been at the exchange in a variety of different roles for about 15 years. So I can take it in chronological order, which might be might be easiest. I'm from Detroit, Michigan, originally born and raised there. And uh, when I was in college, I had an interest in politics and public policy and had found my way down to Washington, D.C. through various internships and, and early jobs. And early on, I spent time at the White House and I was positioned over or I was uh, repositioned over to the State Department for a number of years. Uh, early on in my career. And in that time, I had the great opportunity to build a lot of relationships. I worked uh, very closely uh, with with Secretary Rice, Condoleezza Rice at the time. And I had the opportunity to build a lot of relationships with members of the diplomatic corps. So those ambassadors based in Washington, um, finance ministers, foreign ministers, central bank governors, and other relevant um, kind of cabinet level positions in non-US governments. And so I did that for a number of years. And my interests uh, have always been kind of public policy and politics and, and business. And I went off to get my MBA at the University of Notre Dame. Um, and I, I my, part of the reason why I went there is I'm from the Midwest. I had, I had a lot of respect for the institution, but also they allowed me to get it done in one year and I could cram it all into 12 months. And I was in a hurry. I just didn't know to where, uh, but I, uh, I went off and, and you know, studied corporate finance and on the day I graduated, I, I planned to go on to law school. And ultimately, uh, that same day, got a telephone call from a former boss of mine down in Washington, D.C., who had worked for the president for five years and had worked for President Bush when he was governor of Texas for six years as well, and said, I need you to come to New York. And I thought, well, I have no interest in coming to New York. He says, look, uh, we're taking the New York Stock Exchange Global, and I need you to be part of the team. And I said, all right, well, again, I have no interest in moving to New York. I have these other plans. He says, look, do it for six months. Uh, consider it another degree. If you don't like it, no harm, no foul, you can go on your way. And so in July of 2007, I started at the New York Stock Exchange uh, in global affairs and government relations. So I dealt mainly with governments, exchanges, other key policymakers and regulators outside the United States, and also kind of pulled in different pieces of the US structure as well. Did that for a number of years. And then, you know, the exchange industry, and I'm happy to go into it a bit later about how we've transformed so much over the past decade or two. But um, the exchange industry is one where uh, economies of scale come in quite quickly. And so we thought, you know, what, let's start acquiring other exchanges around the world. And we quickly learned that every country had a flag and army and a stock exchange. So there's a lot of national pride that goes along with it. And my role was to really help us build those key relationships with policymakers and regulators at the top in order to help execute our corporate strategy globally and help advance and accelerate global capital markets. So I did that for a number of years. 
Um, we were actually the target of an acquisition back in 20, announced in 2013, I'm sorry, 2012, closed in 2013 with Intercontinental Exchange. Um, once that deal was closed, I worked on, I was head of corporate affairs, which was just a fancy way of saying things that did not necessarily fit in a, uh, in a business unit or things that needed to get done that nobody wanted to do. And so I did that for a number of years um, and then ultimately took over our listings business, which is kind of our flagship business, most well-known business and got to work in there for a number of years, still rolls up to me, bolted on all new business like um, uh, capital markets, which is our IPOs, uplistings, all those products where companies come to market with new equity issuance, uh, ETFs and funds. I was the chief operating officer of NYSE for a number of years, and I've been in the role of vice chairman uh, for a couple of years now as well. So it's been an exciting ride. Um, you know, I've got to see my career evolve along with our incredible organization. So could you just give us a little bit more insight into what your role entails on a day-to-day -day basis? A typical day is exciting and unlike anywhere else on the planet. And if we take a step back, maybe I'm a little bit biased, but I say there's four buildings that define America. The White House, the Capitol, the Supreme Court, and the New York Stock Exchange. So it is a place where you get to meet and interact with leaders from business, academia, and government on a daily basis. And you have this front row seat to capitalism and entrepreneurship that is unlike anywhere else, not only in this country, but around the world as well. So my day usually starts pretty early. Uh, obviously, I try to consume as much news and information as I can, whether it be corporate earnings or just news or, or what's going on in geopolitics, because all that helps inform how we run our business and how we communicate with our stakeholders. I'm usually in early to the office. And then, yeah, you know, probably about two to three times a week, I'm fortunate enough to be the host for the group that's ringing the opening bell. That can be anything from a um, company celebrating IPO or initial public offering to companies coming back and celebrating some sort of corporate milestone or new product launch. But nonetheless, you get to meet some really amazing people from all walks of life in all parts of the world. I spend a lot of time with my team, making sure that we're continuing to execute on our strategy, that we're making sure we're developing our team members so we can continue to run faster, jump higher, think smarter, and innovate more in our organization. And, um, and obviously, uh, throughout the day, various things can come up, whether it be business-related or yesterday I was in Washington, D.C., meeting with a number of members of the United States Senate. So just given the Given the perch that we sit on and the fact that we have 2,500 listed companies from over 46 countries around the world together, so aggregated, that's about $40 trillion worth of market cap. And those companies employ 43 million people directly. So there's a lot of stakeholders uh, to spend time with uh, and, and explain the benefits of the U.S. capital markets. Great. Some very interesting experiences indeed. And, you know, you mentioned how you've had this unique perspective of being at the exchange from when it first started to what it is now. And obviously a lot of changes have gone on, but what would you say are some of the most salient ways in which it has evolved? It is a great question. And more change has happened at the New York Stock Exchange in the last two decades than the preceding two centuries. And all for the better as well. For probably 200 years of our history, or just over 200 years of our history, we operated as this member-owned organization that you had seat holders. And if you owned a seat, that was your equity in the exchange. And we operated for their benefit. And it was a model that worked for a long time until it needed to evolve. And in the mid-2000s, so 2005, 2006, 2007, technology started playing an ever-increasing role in market operations. 
It had over the preceding two decades, but really got amplified during that time period. That coupled with um, regulatory changes it meant we needed to evolve our business model and quickly if we were going to survive and thrive in this new world. And so we did just that. We demutualized. We bought out these seat holders we had. At the time, I believe we had 1,366 seat holders. We bought them out. And then we merged with an electronic exchange group out of Chicago called Archipelago, who had really good technology. And by doing that, we actually became a public company ourselves. Now, the exchange industry is one where economies of scale come in more quickly than any other, at least in theory. You put two exchanges together, you remove one fixed cost base, realize your costs and revenue synergies quite quickly. And we went out uh, to expand the New York Stock Exchange. We had a number of smaller deals. And then in April of 2007, just before I joined, and really the, the catalyst for me joining, is we got together with an exchange group out of Europe called Euronext. So the exchanges in Paris, Lisbon, Brussels, Amsterdam, and a futures exchange in London called Life. And that deal came through. We were, we were, uh, uh, we were a global exchange group, multi-asset class, multi-product, really leading in, uh, in the world and in financial markets in particular. And we made uh, some smaller acquisitions. And then in December of 2012, a then 14-year-old startup exchange out of Atlanta, Georgia, called Intercontinental Exchange, decided to make a bid for the then 220-year-old New York Stock Exchange. And after a year's worth of regulatory hurdles uh, and clearances, we finally got the deal closed in November of 2013. And it was an incredible inflection point for our business. So Intercontinental Exchange, I mentioned, was founded 14 years earlier in an entrepreneur's spare bedroom on the belief that technology could bring transparency, efficiency, accessibility, and ultimately opportunity to more people. And so over time, Intercontinental Exchange had, um, had acquired other assets like the International Petroleum Exchange in London, the New York Board of Trade, which was then the world's exchange for soft commodities. So think coffee, sugar, cotton, cocoa, orange juice. And now this, this group, NYSE Euronext. And so that, that, was, that was the most major transformation that had taken place. But it's what happened after that that I think is most interesting. The European exchanges were separated. There was a strong pull from, and, and desire from Brussels and from continental Europe to return those exchanges back to the continent. So we did that and we separated them off and they've done very well independently. But what was most fascinating is that over the preceding decade, the New York Stock Exchange, because of those changes I mentioned earlier, had become leaner, more efficient, more customer and client oriented. And along the way, ICE, Intercontinental Exchange, as it grew out of Jeff Sprecher, our, uh, our founder's you know, home, had become a little bit more structured, a little bit more uh, process oriented. And so while, while if you think of it as a continuum, the NYSE on one end and ICE on the other end, both exchanges had moved towards the middle over that preceding decade. When the deal happened and the deal closed, there was still a gap and you can only have one culture in, in your business. And it was gonna be the one of ICE, which was let's have management be as close as possible to the front lines of the business. Let's lean into the entrepreneurial DNA that we have while also being respectful of the deep history that, that we have at the New York Stock Exchange. 
And let's make sure this is a meritocracy in the sense that I don't care how long you've been here. Show me what you can do for our business, for our clients to grow and to innovate and deliver value to our various stakeholders. And there will be an opportunity for you. So for me, it was an incredible change that was very well received. I had a great experience under NYSE, but under ICE, I was able to assume roles and responsibilities where, you know, 20 years beforehand, I would have had to be here for another 20 years before I even got a look at those. So it's been an exciting place. We've continued to evolve since then. We now operate 12 exchanges, seven clearinghouses around the world. We're one of the world's largest market data providers, particularly ESG-related data, which is becoming increasingly important in the marketplace. And also, as we record this, last night we announced a, a very large acquisition of a company called Black Knight, our planned acquisition of that, because we want to take this playbook of turning analog to digital and leveraging technology to bring transparency, efficiency, and accessibility, ultimately more opportunity to more people, to different parts of the economy. So if we think about areas where this playbook can carry over, it's the US mortgage market. People don't want a mortgage, they want a house. And to the extent we can leverage our skill set to shorten that line from A to B, while also having risk controls and more transparency, that's gonna be a good thing for many stakeholders. So the one thing I'll say is more change has happened here in the past two decades, and I think it's going to that, that rate of change is going to continue to accelerate. It's definitely great to learn more about the history of the exchanges and how that's impacting what's happening now. And uh, like you said, definitely some really interesting things happening in the pipeline. And we can't talk about IPOs without talking about SPACs. And, you know, we've sort of seen their rapid increase in popularity over the past year and also a little bit of a decline recently. So do you think that this popularity is something that will continue in a post-COVID world? It's a really good question. Um, the, the, the short answer is SPACs are going to continue to be around but they are never going to be at the levels that they were in 2021 and 2020 ever again. And you know what I am excited about is that if you roll back the clock and look five years ago, six years ago, there was pretty much one pathway to the public markets. That was the traditional IPO. With the SPAC and other products that we've helped innovate and, and, and invent in some cases, um, there are more choices for more companies to go public. And that's a good thing because there's now more opportunities that could be tailored to meet their objectives, their investors and their stakeholders objectives along the way. With regard to SPACs, I think you've seen two things come into play. One is regulation is evolving to match evolving market dynamics. And as we've seen at this time, there are about 600 active SPACs in the market over a hundred announced business combinations. And so the SEC, our Securities and Exchange Commission is making sure that the regulatory framework around SPACs and other products continues to evolve to you know, meet the needs and its, and its mandate uh, of investor protection, capital formation, and, uh, and, and creating more opportunity for people. So that's evolving, but also you've seen some market correcting factors and not to get too far into the details, but the kind of pullback or dry up of, of pipe financing and other pieces of a SPAC business combination, that combination of uh, regulatory evolution and market forces coming together has resulted in a healthy pause. And once there's more clarity, you'll see more SPACs coming out. They may look a little different and they may not come uh, at the clip that they were before. 
and you know, sort of talking about another way to go public, you've uh, played a key role in developing direct listings at the stock exchange, and particularly notable companies like Spotify and Palantir have gone public through this avenue. Could you tell us more about your involvement in this? Yeah, absolutely. So maybe just taking a step back, you have to think about why do companies go public? Why do they typically IPO? It's to raise capital that they can use to grow and expand their business, launch new products, tap into new geographies, create jobs and improve lives. Great stuff. Number two is liquidity, being able to provide liquidity to their employees, their investors, the people who help get them there. Number three is a share currency for M&A. So you can use your new shares to help acquire other companies and, and you can grow organically, but also inorganically now and have, a, have more tools in your toolkit to do that. Branding, uh, it's a, you know, and credibility. And so particularly for software companies, showing that you are a public company, you meet the highest bar is very important for them as they bring on customers and customers wanna know about the longevity um, uh, of that company and sustainability of the company. But what's interesting is that as market dynamics and the and financial markets have evolved, the reasons why companies are going public, how they prioritize them has also evolved. So for some companies, that number one reason, historic reason for going public, access to capital, is not the primary driver of why they're coming to the markets. It may be liquidity for their investors, employees, and, and others. And so we worked with Spotify and said, hey, how can we help you solve your problem or, or achieve your objective to become public, but do it in a different way that's more aligned to your goals? So we decided to, to work and create the direct listing. And in April of 2018, Spotify went public. It was an exciting moment because remember, there's no underwriting bank. There's no stabilization agent. This was pure price discovery and market forces taking a company public, I'm sorry, taking a company from being private to being public. And it, from an exchange standpoint, it was executed flawlessly. And so we love there being more innovation, more access and more opportunity. And if you think about the direct listing, you know, everybody has the same level of access. So whether you are at a, at a hedge fund in London or Greenwich, Connecticut, or on a mountaintop in Bolivia or in the North of England, you have the same access to the same opportunity at the same time. And so not only that efficient pricing that comes along with the, with the direct listing, but that democratized access is um, are, are, are great features of the product and something we're very proud of. And that's why we leaned in and created the primary direct listing to even evolve that further. Very interesting to hear about such a pivotal development in the capital markets. And, you know, we've had a great conversation about all the things that the stock exchange does and what it seeks to achieve. But what is your long-term vision for the stock exchange? Uh, it's a really good question. <laughs> We've been around for 230 years. I want us to be around for another 230 years. And there's some exciting technologies and opportunities that are on the horizon. You know, 50 years ago, people were carrying stock certificates around in bags. Now we're processing over 1.3 trillion messages a day in under 30 microseconds. So it's evolved a lot, even in the past 50 years. Over the next five years, it's going to continue to evolve. A lot of these technologies around blockchain, um, digital assets are interesting. Now, their application is not immediate or or everywhere um, in the exchange world. But those technologies do bring some interesting things. And so to the extent we can, again, leverage new technologies to bring more access to more opportunities to more people, whether it be the form of digital assets and 
putting the regulatory framework and the liquidity involved to, to create marketplaces and asset classes that had not had marketplaces yet and allow retail and institutional investors the opportunity to participate. That's what I'm very much focused on uh, doing to ensure that this place is continues to play the incredible role it has in providing so much opportunity to both companies, but importantly, people in being able to change their, their outcomes for the better. Great. Thank you for sharing that with us and some very exciting ideas indeed. So we've had a great conversation around your career, your career development, as well as more about the work that you do. And, you know, so for finally wrap things up, do you have any advice that you'd like to give to our listeners? Look, I think what benefited me the most, and I think it it's relatable to a lot of people that will be listening to this, is trying something different early on. You do not have to have a linear path. You'll realize that life and careers are nonlinear and the opportunities you have will come, you know, you can map out 10 different um, plans for your life, but it's going to be the 11th one that actually is what you end up doing. And so to the extent you can do something interesting early on where you may not be making a lot of money, but you'll be gaining a lot of currency and life experience and knowledge, take that chance because you can always come back to that main track that you studied or that you wanted to do. And if you do, you'll just be a more interesting person than everyone else in it. Great. And that's some very relevant advice that I'm sure a lot of us can apply to our lives. It has been a pleasure having you here today. And thank you for taking the time to speak with us. And thank you to our audience for listening and stay tuned for more episodes to come.